we are in the middle of our 50 uh, series, and we called it that because Christ Jesus was crucified um, on the Passover, and 50 days from the Passover uh, was another feast, and the Holy Spirit was released on the New Testament believers at that other, the day of the other feast, and there were 50 days. Um, and so what we've sort of been looking at is the first few chapters of Acts, and we're specifically looking at it um, to gain some understanding and even sort of call the question, uh, how can we as believers experience more um, of the Holy Spirit when we already have everything in Christ? Because there's so much in scripture that sort of indicates that we're called to be hungry, we're called to be um, sort of desirous for, for more of God, for more of his spirit, for more of his presence, for more of his anointing, for more of his word. Um, and, and yet scripture also tells us we have um, everything in Christ. And so that's sort of the dichotomy that we've been talking about and working through and then even looking practically at sort of the infilling um, uh, or as the, some of the scripture calls it, the baptism um, in the spirit. So I am in um, Acts 3 today and I'm gonna read portions of it, um, but the whole chapter is fabulous just for time. I'm not gonna read it all. Uh, but I, I think let's set the table as, as I begin to read this, and hopefully you have a Bible or your phone or whatever you're gonna look on, um, but go ahead and open that up. And, and as we open it up, here's a couple things I want you to think about. When I read Acts, and, and truly when I read most of the Bible, um, if, if you sort of step back and begin to think about who you're reading about and the characters or um, the people in their lives, what I actually begin to see or feel is kind of like, why would God use them? Or I can't believe God chose to do it that way. And, you know, it's like, why fishermen, Lord? Or why tax collectors? Or, you know, it's just such a motley crew. And it's absolutely um, intriguing to me who God picked, why he picked them. And, you know, you, you typically think if a group of us got together and we said, okay, let's, let's write a holy book or, or let's, um, let's, let's write a, a message about how we're called to live our lives, we'd actually write stories about people who did it perfectly, wouldn't we? We'd probably write stories about people who were flawless, people who were real heroes, people who did everything right, people who were upstanding in all their ways. But what you actually begin to see in the Bible, which is sort of counterintuitive, but what you see from all the way from the beginning, Genesis through Revelation, which is why I call many of us, all of us really, to be in the one-year Bible. But, but what you begin to see is actually a group of people um, who have tried it on their own and failed who have tried it on their own and they've come up short, who have um, not been able actually to do it all. And so instead of this being a book of heroes, this is really a book um, that highlights human frailty, um, even human failure. And then it brings to the forefront a, a group of people who are willing to sort of surrender their heart and life to King Jesus um, and, and ask that God would begin to do it in them and through them. And that in a nutshell is the story of the gospel. That's really uh, what this book is all about. So I kind of want you thinking that um, as we are reading a few verses here in Acts chapter three. Uh, so let's dig in, here we are. Acts chapter three, I'm reading out of the NIV this morning. But it says, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, first thing you need to note here is literally they're going to, uh, in, in Judaism, they would have gone to the, the, for prayer at the temple at 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 
p.m. And what's fascinating to me is even though they're now new in Christ, they're still going for that afternoon prayer. And you know what's really beautiful, if you ever see a Jewish person um, who comes to faith in Jesus, the wealth of their knowledge and experience because of the knowledge of the Old Testament is so extraordinary that they're almost propelled light years ahead of most of us who the Bible calls Gentiles, but it's just non-Jewish people, um, because they have so much knowledge and understanding. And once sort of that connection is made that Jesus is the Messiah, that all the Old Testament is sort of pointing to, it's like, boom, it all lights up. So I, I love that you have Peter and John who are disciples, both were fishermen, and they're literally going uh, to the temple for prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, verse two, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Now, this temple gate would also, uh, could have been the golden uh, gate, was another uh, sort of word for it, but it is almost assuredly uh, the, the gate in which Jesus entered riding on the donkey um, on Palm Sunday. So, uh, really significant gate. So, uh, he's, this, this uh, lame gentleman is literally carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, and he's uh, put there to beg from those going into the temple court. Verse three, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Peter reached down, verse seven, and took him by the right hand and helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and his ankles became strong. He jumped up onto his feet and he literally begins to walk around. And he, then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and sort of praising God. And all the people saw him and they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. Now, a couple verses down, I'm gonna jump down to verse 12. All of a sudden, a huge group of onlookers has collected because they recognize that here was a crippled man. He couldn't even walk. And now, not only is he walking, he's jumping, he's dancing, he's praising God, he's giving glory to King Jesus. And so verse 12, this is literally Peter's second sermon. So again, first pastor of the first church, the New Testament church is literally sprawling out. 3,000 people have just come to faith. Um, and, and Peter stands up and gives his second sermon. And he says, People of Israel, in verse 12, why does this surprise you? I love this. I love this. Because here's what he says next. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or our own godliness we made this man walk? Us pastors could use a good dose of that, couldn't we? Peter literally is, is, is like aware that he is absolutely bankrupt and he actually stands there and goes, why are you staring at us like we're crazy? We didn't make this guy walk. And then he goes in verse 13, the God of Abraham. So remember, he's speaking in a Jewish context. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. And then he gets like brutal here. Look at this. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the Holy One, the Righteous One. You asked that a murderer, Barabbas, be released to you. And then verse 15 says, you killed 
the author of life. Can you imagine preaching that? I mean, I don't know if that'd go over very well in our American culture, at least not what people expect preachers to give today. And then he goes on, but God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and we, Peter and John, are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know, so they're now talking about this beggar, was made strong in It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. And then verse 19 is the last one I'm gonna read. Repent then, that's what Peter says, which means turn. That's a Bible word and it's probably been overused across the decades here in America, but it literally means you're going your own way. It means to turn and go the way of God. It just means to, to turn. So repent is what Peter says. Turn to God so your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts and minds this morning? Would you fill us? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you convict us? Would you lead us onward? Lord, if there's people scrolling through this morning, would you even grab their attention, not with the power of my words or even what we've sung or said. No, no, would you grab them with the power that emanates from our risen Christ Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. So here we are, and I think the very first thing that that you uh, have to look at and have to see here is the gospel is certainly intended for all people. I mean, Jesus uh, made that absolutely um, clear. It's it's intended for all people. But the gospel, uh, not only being intended for all people, has been specifically focused on the outcast, the marginalized, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, those without hope, um, even the refugee, those who are stuck in a country that's not theirs. I mean, that is, when you read from Genesis to Revelation, there is something that is absolutely beautiful through the entirety of scripture that Jesus, that God himself is always focused on those who are um, out there, who are feeling isolated, who are feeling alone. It's funny, we're sitting in a coronavirus time because I think many of us are actually um, feeling some of that. But it's fascinating to me that what unfurls here in this, in this scene is that Peter and John are literally going to pray and they, they stop because this man has asked for money. They don't have money, they don't have a building, they, they don't have anything. All they have is this new infilling of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of King Jesus, and they choose not to walk by this guy. So I was sort of reflecting, and uh, we have a couple people in our church, David and Naomi Tepper, and they spent, I think it was a decade of their lives ministering um, up in Manhattan. And they had a place in Astoria, New York, and it was actually a recovery ministry called Battelle. And they would help people who were struggling with various addictions or um, who were homeless, or I mean, there, there was people who, who shared stories when, when we were up there of all sorts of, of backgrounds. But Abby and I, my wife and I would take, uh, we took groups three or four times up there to actually minister and just be a part. And I think we were blessed more than they were. And I have enormous respect, by the way, for, for David and for Naomi. But they would, they said something the first trip that I've never forgotten. And they said, as you're out and about on the streets, don't walk by the person sitting asking for money. Don't walk by. And then they went on in the education of us and they they said, uh, don't give money, no, 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 but don't walk by, stop and pray with that person, treat them like a human, even get down on that level and interact with someone who's sitting there. So it it literally becomes, uh, maybe even invite them to and take them to a restaurant or take them to a grocery store and buy them something to eat, but, but don't 
walk by. And what you begin to see here in this New Testament church is this same ethic, this, this same care for the outcast, the marginalized, the person who can't do it, the person who is lame. You know, Jesus actually says in Luke 5, 31, that I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And you know what's funny is the people who think they're not sick, they're probably the sickest. See, we're all sick without King Jesus and we're all in a recovery sort of journey. But God's heart has always been and the empowering of the Holy Spirit has always caused people to focus on people who are um, outcast and marginalized and, and disregarded. The second thing that I wanna point out this morning is God often gives us what we need, not what we want. God often gives us what we need, but not always what we want. So go back in your mind, even to this story we've just read. You have this man who literally has to be carried, probably by family members, and he may even be, you know, have kids or a wife or who knows, uh, but he's literally being carried to this, this um, temple gate. And it's, it's very common in the Eastern world at, at mosques, at temples, for people to gather and, and to beg. That, that's very normal even today. And um, so he, this guy's literally carried there and, and he sat down and he, he looks at Peter and he's asking for money and yet he gets health. It's fascinating to me because, you know, God, uh, not only does God not give him um, money, uh, God gives him though health and the, therefore the ability to go and make money or go and produce or go and provide for his family. So it's, it's fascinating because God answers his prayer, not by giving him what he's asked for, but by giving him the means to consistently actualize what he's asking for, which is provision. See, God's an empowering God. There's this country music song, I can't even remember who played it, but it's sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. It's fascinating to me, because this guy asks for money, and Peter literally looks at him and says, silver and gold I don't have, man. I have nothing, but what I have I give to you. And I was cross-referencing this to Luke 6:38, where Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured out onto your lap. And what you begin to get there, it's actually an imagery and it only makes sense probably in the Middle East, but you begin to picture almost a burlap sack uh, being filled with wheat. And as the wheat goes in, it's, it's literally um, a good measure of wheat, pressed down, shaken together, running over, then poured out. It's, it's, it's sort of this heavenly imagery. It's this supernatural imagery of a God who wants to give, but he wants to give so much more than what we're asking for. You, you see this God of love who, it's not that he wants to give you enough money or this, this guy sitting at the gate, beautiful enough money so that he could go eat one meal. No, no, he wants to actually give him so that he can actually go and provide and live from here on. You get to see this heart of God that, that wants to get down and, and give everything. You know, one of the things I came across was an interaction that a guy that I have a lot of respect for named St. Thomas Aquinas had with one of the popes. He actually had it with uh, Pope Innocent II. And St. Thomas um, walked into a room and Pope Innocent II was um, uh, standing before a huge table and the table was covered in gold. And the Pope was actually counting the gold and sort of sorting through it as the story goes. 
And the Pope looked up at him and said, you see, the church is no longer in an age where she says silver and gold, have I none? And there's a pause in the room. There's a moment where St. Thomas stands there and he looks up at the Holy Father and he says, true, Holy Father, but neither can she any longer say to the lame, rise up and walk. We've gotten lost, haven't we? We've gotten lost. Generally speaking, the more natural or human resources we have, the less heavenly resources we need. Therefore, we're not as likely to sort of depend on him or cling to him or make King Jesus kind of our our only hope. So my first point, point this morning is the gospel is intended for all people, but there's a special focus on the marginalized, the outcast, the fatherless, the widow, the alien. The second point is God often gives us what we need, but not always what we want or what we think we want or even what we're asking for. And the third thing that I want to point out here is Peter's just brilliant response. It's in verse six, and he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And it's so hard for us because we live 2,000 years after all this transpired, but literally um, Peter is is, uh, quoting the name and using the name of a guy who died two months previously. And everybody knew. It was like the chatter of Jerusalem. People would have known. And so to to use um, a person's name who had died almost didn't make sense except that this Jesus had risen from the dead. You know, it's interesting because this week, Um, We lost actually one of my heroes in the faith. His name was Ravi Zacharias. Some of you probably know and love him as well, but he went home to be with Jesus. He crossed the finish line. He finished the race. And as powerful as a man and powerful as a minister of the gospel uh, as Ravi is, I would never stand here and say, in the name of Ravi Zacharias. No, no. But we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So it's absolutely uh, sort of revolutionary that that Peter would literally say this. And he uses it because uh, a name only has power if it has position. So go with me there a second. A name only has power if it has position. Now, Jesus literally has the highest position in the universe because he took the lowest position in the universe. So the power in the name of Jesus comes because there is no other name that has that type of power and that type of authority because he gave it all, because he ascended, he beat death, he conquered the grave. So Peter's literally using the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, it's interesting because at night when, I, uh, when we put our kids to bed, I've sung it to all of our kids, but there's this little nighttime song and right now I sing it to Amelia. I don't yet sing it to Ezra. I will as he gets older, but it goes, Jesus, there's something about that name. Jesus, there's something about that name. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. 
See, I want our kids to actually understand the positional authority and therefore the power that the name of Jesus has. There is nothing, there is no addiction, there is no challenge, there is no fear, there is no obstacle that you can face that the name of Jesus cannot rise up and overcome and break through. It may not be in the way you want it to happen or the way you'd like it to happen or even what you're praying for, but the name of Jesus is the name of all power and all authority is given to him. So Peter so rightly looked at this lame man and grabbed him and said, rise up and walk. And his ankles and his knees became strong and he stood up and he danced. You know, there's 250 names that I can find uh, or titles for Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And, and Peter uses about half a dozen of them here. God's servant, holy and righteous one, the promised seed, Christ, the anointed one, healer. But what's brilliant to me about all of the Bible is that you can take every passage, every book, the essence and the message of every, every part of this book that was written by over, in over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and every one of them you can trace the thread and it goes back to King Jesus. Philippians 2.9 says Jesus has the name above all names. You want entrance into heaven? Use the name of Jesus. You want forgiveness of your sin? Use the name of Jesus. You want to know God? Use the name of Jesus. You want freedom from something in your life? You call on the name of Jesus. We have some people in our church family, Matt and Adrian Beatty, and they just had a son named Bennett, and Bennett, uh, in the uh, months leading up to his birth, had a severe, huge risk, and Adrian kept going in, and she kept getting these scans to check on Bennett, and they kept telling him every single scan that she had to come back and say, uh, something's wrong with his heart. There's a heart defect, and it was actually so serious that they wanted uh, them to have the baby um, at Duke so that as soon as the baby was delivered, the baby could go into heart surgery. And you can imagine the grief of Adrian and Matthew and they carried it beautifully, but the weight and the turmoil and the angst. And so they met with all sorts of people and we prayed and we called on the name of Jesus because it's the name above all names. And she actually went into labor earlier than expected and little baby Bennett was born here in Wilmington. And he was born and they waited with this sort of, sort of bated breath of going, oh my goodness, is he, is he, what's gonna be going on with his heart? And they kept looking and doing scans and they found nothing wrong. Now listen to me. We don't serve a God who says he will heal everyone, but we do serve a God who heals. And when you begin to call on the name of Jesus, the name above every name, there is power. I was texting with Adrian the other day and I said, this story will forever be a miracle in my book. And it's written in my five-year journal. See, historians could say otherwise, but in all of time, from the beginning of time to now, it, it counted down to the birth of Jesus. 
And then time changed and it's counting up now to his return. Even time, secular historians have measured time off of Christ. He is the pivotal hinge pin around with everything orients. In the night sky, there's the North Star, Polaris, and the entire star or the entire solar, or not solar system, stars that we see orient around that one star. It's just like Jesus. He is the hinge pin. He is the center. He is the cornerstone around which everything orients. And when we as believers will come to God and actually put Jesus in his rightful place as king and Lord of our lives, our lives begin to fall into accurate and appropriate orientation around him. Keep him off the throne. Keep him off to the side and your life will never fall into place, will never work out because it was made, you were made and fashioned by God to have King Jesus as Lord of your life, filled with his spirit, empowered to carry his name everywhere you go. I have a friend, I texted him this morning, but they have a car and on one of the cars, their car, family car, I think it actually says in the name. That's, what, that's literally what the license plate says. It's like a specialty license plate and it says in the name. It's a friend of mine, David Anderson. But I love that because he actually gets it. Like he gets it because there's power in the name of Jesus. I don't care where you are. I don't care how dark of a place you're in. You could be facing suicide. You could be struggling with an addiction. You could be hiding something from a spouse or a family member. And when you begin to call on the name of Jesus and bring that thing or those things that are hidden into the light, he can begin to make them right. It's the name of Jesus that releases all power on heaven and earth. In the name. My fourth point where I want to end this morning is, it's literally what Peter says in verse 19. I want to read it. I love Peter because he's so bold. Like he doesn't mince words. There's none of this sort of like feel good motivational gospel here. It's just like, boom, here's what he says. Repent, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So the Greek here for wiped out, it, it literally means to, to wash off. And I had to do some research because it just didn't make full sense to me. But if you, if you look into the actual Greek, um, at this point in time, they were writing on a substance called papyrus. And uh, they used an ink um, that didn't have acid in it. So, so this ink that they would use uh, would just sort of sit on top of the paper. And what makes ink actually soak into paper or papyrus is when there's acid added to it and it literally etches the page or the paper. So when Peter says that your sins would be wiped out, he is literally uh, saying, because in, in, in those days you could take papyrus and you could take a sponge or you could take a wet rag and you could set it on the papyrus for a few seconds and then you could wipe the letters off. And he's literally saying, the name, King Jesus, when you come to him, there is such power. He can take all of the things in your life and mine, the things that are wrong, the things that have us in bondage, the things that keep us from being truly free, and he can take it and wipe it away like it's gone. I got a story behind me, and I've struggled with my own guilt and my own shame because of my story, and he has wiped it away. He can do the same for you. Repent and turn to God. Amelia, our two-year-old, she always, uh, not always, but frequently, she'll 
if I'm not around, she'll uh, ask Abby, my wife, her mom, she'll, she'll ask Abby, where is my daddy? And I love that. She says, where is my daddy? And if there's anything I want for you this morning, it's actually to know this Jesus as my Jesus to know him that personally, to know him that intimately, like this little girl who is so confident, where is my daddy? Where is my Jesus? I want Jocelyn to come back up. She's got a beautiful closing song. But I wanna end with a poem. It's an interesting poem from a guy that lived in the 1800s, early 1900s by the name of Stuttered Kennedy, he's a British guy. And he uses the name of a, of a city in this poem. And I'm gonna change that name to Wilmington as I read it. And once I'm done, Jocelyn, will you come up and lead us in a closing song? It's called Indifference. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through his hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Wilmington, they simply passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them for they know not what they do. And still it rained the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. Calvary.